You're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, we discuss how dating apps stress us out, the discovery of a massive ancient frog grave, and how gene therapy can potentially cure colorblindness. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. Okay, tell me, Nate, do you think it's better or worse to have a lot of options on a dating app as opposed to only a few? On one hand, exclusivity means you're way more likely to be noticed, though it also means there's a high chance you won't find someone you're looking for. But an overabundance of options means it could be more easily ignored or get overwhelmed. Well, apparently, having too many options on dating apps could have adverse effects such as fear of staying single, a negative effect on your self-esteem, and yes, an overwhelming amount of partner choice overload. Yeah, that makes sense. But how do people know this? There were a few different studies that painted the big picture. Study one was a survey of 667 adults between the ages of 18 and 67. Here, they found that dating app use was associated with an increased perception that there were too many people on the site. How did they find that out? By measuring their dating app use with one item on a scale that went from never to several times a day. Then they measured participants' perceived availability with a statement that said the number of potential partners is nearly infinite. They used similar measures to figure out a fear of being alone, then compared answers to each participant's age, gender, and relationship status. And when stacked together, it revealed that most participants, regardless of age, gender, or status, became much more anxious when presented with an abundance of choice. It's sort of like having too many ice cream flavors to choose from. How do you know which one is actually the best? <laughs> Picking ice cream and finding a partner. Very similar. Yep. Uh, in another study, they changed the number of available partners to each participant to randomize numbers of 11, 31, or 91 options. All right. How did that study turn out? Uh, the same as the first study. High partner availability would increase the fear of being single, decrease a sense of self-worth, and would generally just stress the participants out. Furthermore, it was discovered that excessive swiping on dating apps can increase this level of anxiety by a huge margin. Okay. Well, that reminds me a lot of the old Josephine Hart quote. We do have choice, but not without some agony. Yeah, actually, you're right. Uh, too much of a good thing can, in fact, be a bad thing. Now, to be fair, the researchers admit that they were limited in their results. All the participants in the second study were undergraduates and leaned female, potentially skewing the findings, especially since it said that men overestimate the availability of potential sexual or romantic interest, while women do not. I can't say I'm surprised that men think they have more options out there than women do. Yeah, me too. Uh, study one showed that men are much more likely than women to say that potential partners are infinite. Even so, it unequivocally shows that excessive profile browsing on dating apps can negatively affect one's mental health. This is just one problematic feature of dating apps, though, because different dating app features have different rewarding and demotivating effects when working together. So, long story short, if you're going to spend some time on a dating app, maybe limit yourself to less than 31 swipes per day. Why 31? Because that was the low barometer for swiping in the study. Ah, great. I'll keep that in mind for if I have to use a dating app again. You mean five minutes from now? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> All right, Callie, today I want to tell you about a giant mass grave over 45 million years old, 
found in the Geiseltal region of central Germany. But this wasn't just any normal mass grave. It was a mass grave of frogs. I want to play a game with you. How do you think they died? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Uh, Okay. Climate change. A meteor. Murder. Hmm. Frog murder running around. (laughs) No. No, no, no. The answer is exhaustion. Okay. From mating. What? Okay. No. Hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So frogs have been alive since the days of dinosaurs. Yes. They've survived the Armageddon event that made dinosaurs extinct. They're highly resilient creatures, and you're telling me they got exhausted from sex and just died? Yes, that's right. (laughs) A team of researchers from Ireland and Germany studied the skeletons, took photos, analyzed the fossils, and cross-checked other theories about the frogs. Previously, they believed that the frogs died when the lakes they lived in dried up and oxygen levels decreased. But then they thought this was pretty unlikely. Okay, why? Several reasons. One, because frogs can easily make their way over to a different body of water. Also, there was evidence that dead frogs floated on the surface of the water before they sank, meaning the lake never even dried up. And perhaps more tellingly, these researchers discovered that they weren't frogs at all. They were toads. Huh. Okay, you just M. Night Shyamalan'd me there, Nate. What is the difference? Yeah. Uh, What is the difference between a frog and a toad anyways? Well, toads live more of a land-based lifestyle and only return to ponds when they, get this, mate. During a toad's mating season, they take on multiple sexual partners during a very short window of time, sometimes as many as dozens of partners. Okay, that is a lot of toad sex during a few months. Well, about that, some of these mating seasons last not quite that long. It's less like a few months and more like a few hours. What? Okay, so dozens of toads mating for just a few hours. (laughs) This is sounding like a toad orgy. Yes, that is exactly what it is. No. And here's the thing. Sex can be a bit of a death trap for toads. Because they're mating in the water as land-based creatures, they can get exhausted and drown. Female toads are at a higher risk because they're often submerged during the mating process. What? You can still find mass toad graves like this one on toad migration routes or near mating ponds. This is why researchers believe that this pond was the site of a massive toad orgy gravesite. That was a lot of words. That is a lot to take in. Mm. Uh, How did the toads remain undisturbed for so long? Well, their bodies were moved by very light currents in swampy water and sank to a colder, deeper, and undisturbed part of the lake. This prevented decay, kept the skeletons in shape, and even kept some smaller bones like finger and toe bones completely intact. These frogs could have died from a number of causes during coitus, freezing, disease, old age. I would say those poor toads, but look at how they went out. Way to go, guys. Uh, (laughs) Generally agreed, but this mass death orgy is nothing compared to the effect of humanity on toads and frog lives simply through destroying their homes, polluting water sources, and even spreading disease. Like you said at the start, frogs have survived for millennia through several climate changes and extinction events on Earth. Some species have gone extinct in recent years, though, because of humans. In 2021, 
one of the few remaining frog species of an ancient line of amphibians was declared likely extinct since nobody's seen one in 60 years. Okay, so to recap here, toads die regularly from exhaustion during mating, but the best way to help them survive is to leave them alone and let them mate? Exactly. Some will inevitably die because of how dangerous it is to mate in water as a land creature, but if we leave the toads alone, they'll probably outlive humans. Well, if they didn't, they went out swinging. (laughs) Good choice of words. (laughs) I didn't actually mean it until I I said it. Today, I want to chat with you about a super common disorder that affects tons of people around the world, but as of yet, has no known cure. Oh, no. Is this going to be a depressing story? Oh, don't worry. It's not life-threatening, and there have been some really interesting recent advancements in treatment. I'm talking about colorblindness. Though it's not treated as a severe disorder, colorblindness can be incredibly tough to deal with, and it exists on a spectrum. I've known a couple of people who've suffered from it, and you're totally right. It doesn't seem to be that debilitating, but it definitely affects a person's day-to-day depending on where they are on that spectrum. So what are these new advancements you mentioned? Well, there's a new study and clinical trial that is based on using gene therapy to restore color visuals to those born with achromatopsia, which affects the photoreceptors in the eyes. These receptors are called rods and cones, but cones are the ones responsible for color vision. So when people are born with achromatopsia, these cones aren't able to send signals to the brain, which results in total colorblindness and very poor vision overall. Okay, how does gene therapy correct that? Well, researchers use gene therapy to activate the dormant cells to encourage them to send those signals between the retina and the brain. The clinical trial is working with four children who suffer from total colorblindness, and they have recently been able to restore color visuals in two of the kids. That's pretty awesome. But let's back up for a minute. When you say gene therapy, what do you mean exactly? Uh, Gene therapy is a relatively recent treatment that can modify our existing genes that contain our DNA to provide treatment to genetic disorders. So for people with achromatopsia, researchers can pinpoint which gene is faulty and try to correct it. Okay, so how does this particular study do that? All right, I'm going to hit you with some technical terms here, but researchers used something called functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is basically a brain scan. What they were using it for is to map out any changes in vision before and after the treatment. They use the scan along with something called silent substitution that uses lights to selectively stimulate cones or rods in the eye. Then they take this data and compare it to people born with normal eyesight. For this study, they tested nine untreated patients and 28 volunteers with regular vision to compare with the children who experienced the treatment. You said that there were four children and an improved function for just two of them, though? Yeah. Uh, In two of the kids, they found some evidence of those signals from the cones in the eye I told you about six to 14 months after the treatment. And for context, these patients had no evidence of cone function before the treatment on any tests. But after the treatment, their measurements were pretty similar to the volunteers with no visual disorders. For the two other children, however, the results were inconclusive. Researchers aren't sure whether the treatment didn't work or if there were some side effects that the tests they used didn't catch. Mm, Seems like there's a bit more learning to be done. Yeah, a little bit. They're still analyzing the results to see whether gene therapy can actually improve everyday vision for people suffering from achromatopsia. If the results start trending positively, then after more trials, this could be a huge breakthrough for people with retinal diseases. How did the kids whose vision improved feel about all this? Okay, so get this. One kid was quoted as saying, 
Seeing changes to my vision has been very exciting, so I'm keen to see if there are any more changes and where this treatment as a whole might lead in the future. It's actually quite difficult to imagine what or just how many impacts a big improvement in my vision could have since I've grown up with and become accustomed to low vision and have adapted and overcome challenges throughout my life. Okay, wow, a child said that? Uh Uh-huh, he did. It's a complex thought about a complex topic that could end up having a very simple outcome. An easier world for those with colorblindness. Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. 31. That's the recommended number of swipes you should limit yourself to on a dating app because recent studies show that having an overabundance of potential romantic partners can actually increase anxiety and decrease self-esteem. As the saying goes, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. A massive grave containing hundreds of toad skeletons dating back over 45 million years has befuddled scientists for decades. But a recent breakthrough suggests that this mass grave was the result of a massive orgy of toads mating and then dying from exhaustion. Just a fair warning to everyone to know your limits during extreme physical activity. A new breakthrough has been made in gene therapy that could lead to a way to not only treat colorblindness, but potentially cure it altogether. Although results in the study are currently mixed, the researchers believe that after extensive clinical trials, it could completely change the way people deal with colorblindness. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can find our show wherever you get podcasts, and we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our Discovery executive producer is Christina Bavetta. Our Wheelhouse DNA executive producer is Cassie Berman. This show is hosted by us, Callie Gade and Nate Bonham. Our producer is Kiara Noni. Writing is done by Jed Bookout and James Lynch. Our researcher is Julia Schrader. Sound design, audio engineering, and editing by Nick Carissimi. I'm Nate Bonham. And I'm Callie Gade. We'll see you next week.